Hello, everyone. Thanks again for coming to the 2023 Sports Analytics Conference. Uh, my name is Nick Holmes. I'm a first year LGO at MIT Sloan, and we're excited to have you here. Um, I would like to introduce our panel, Like and Subscribe, Co-Streaming in the Influencer Age of Sports, of Esports. Um, our panelists are Parth Naidu, C CEO of, of Saito, Doug Watson, Director of Esports Strategic Advisory at Riot Games, Kareem Fernandez, who's running a little late, but we'll get here, is a content creator at CounterLogic Gaming, and Nick Troop, executive producer at Possible. Our panel will be moderated by Gregory Kim, head of CLG Madison Square Garden Sports. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and then we'll leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Uh, please submit your questions on Twitter by using the hashtag streamingesports. Uh, with that, I'll turn, turn the time over to you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Uh, welcome, everyone, to this year's eSports panel. I'm really excited to dive into um, how eSports is continuing to evolve at the cutting edge of entertainment. Um, but just wanted to level set before we get into it. You know, this is eSports. We're, we're referring to like competitive professional video gaming. And in that, we mean some of the popular titles like League of Legends, Valorant, Counter-Strike, and not uh, necessarily just FIFA or NBA 2K or all the stuff that the Olympics decided to roll out uh, last week <laughs> for the E-Olympics games. Um, but cool, I mean, I just, well, we can dive right in, I guess, Parth, uh, just sort of as a veteran of esports and an astute observer over the years with your time in TSM and, and now in, cons in the consulting space, uh, can you talk to us a bit about what co-streaming is in esports and, you know, what the industry and even other industries like traditional sports and entertainment can sort of learn from what's happening in co-streaming? Sure. So just to talk to us a bit more about this, uh, I wanted to start kind of my journey with sports and esports in general. Uh, I was, I used to watch tennis a lot when I was growing up. My parents loved it. My, my brother watched it. And so before I went off to college, uh, we would watch every slam together, every final, sitting with my brother. He really liked, loved Nadal. I was a Federer Joko fan. And so um, it was just like this camaraderie that I had where I used to watch sports with someone that I loved. And we had rivalry and things that we could talk about. Uh, what happened when I went to college, though, was that I didn't really have that many people who wanted to watch tennis with me. And so slowly, I stopped watching it altogether. Um, and it's really a shame because uh, I know there were some incredible matches between those three in the last seven or eight years. Um, that's kind of where I found esports too. I started playing the game, and then what I discovered was on Twitch, um, there were a lot of players at my skill level, some higher than my skill level, playing the games and talking to me. And slowly it was about building a community, watching someone play the game that you play, getting to know them, getting to understand them. And that's kind of where co-streaming is now. It's big personalities in the space who care about the game, who care about um, the sport that you're watching, and you get to essentially watch that with them. And so that's, that's what co-streaming is for me. Um, I really wish, if I were to go back to tennis, I know Federer just retired, if he were to kind of pop on Twitch, watch the next um, Grand Slam in his couch uh, on, his, on his stream, I would tune in. And I think that's what's missing for sports. It's, how do you leverage the personalities that you have in your industry uh, and put them in a casual setting where some of the people who are fans of that person will tune into a lot of the events? Yeah, so, I mean, Nick, you're, you're like on the production side of this, right? And I, I think we've seen some, some slight innovation in, like in this co-streaming space a bit, like with like the Manning cast or other things that traditional sports do. 
but what do you see as some of like the biggest challenges and opportunities and like how we're doing uh, storytelling or sports storytelling and production and uh, you know how might technology or, or new techniques or innovations like co-streaming sort of factor into that? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is um, <clears throat> Co-streaming from a technological standpoint is, is pretty straightforward. It's not really different from um, how certainly Riot manages its esports broadcasts because Riot already operates in this remote production model where so much of the infrastructure is elsewhere and all that signal is just being carried effectively by the internet. Um, I think what's interesting about co-streaming is it's um, in a good way taking a little bit of the like conservative polish off of the presentation. I think the, the, the challenge for people in my position is how do you maintain or shift what elevated presentation looks like while still equipping the co-streamers with the opportunity to be authentic and have the opportunity to give a unique flavor and presence to the particular event that they're co-streaming. Um, and so some of that is uh, purely an infrastructure. A lot of that is programmatic. And so I think that the, the sort of next couple of years are programmatically going to be interesting because how does co-streamer A differentiate themselves from co-streamer B? Well, the same way they do when they're at home, right? So the onus would be on myself and other producers like me to find a way to evoke, mimic, arguably elevate what their at-home presentation is when they're in venue. Um, whether that comes at an opportunity cost of some of the traditional or sort of nuclear broadcasting units that a lot of these sports run, um, I think is probably more a question from other folks on the panel, but I would say that there's not a workflow reason why it has to be zero sum. Mm -hmm. It's entirely about choosing just what you want your product to be. Totally. And I guess, Doug, like taking a step back from like the, the game publisher perspective or as sort of like the league in this instance or, or sort of like the uh, at a higher level strategy, um, what are you seeing in terms of like the impact here? Like is co-streaming, has co-streaming been a strong tool or, or how do you see it sort of affecting how you guys position events from the organizer perspective? Yeah, I really love how Nick and Proud set this up because when we think about it, like first and foremost, we're looking at how can we create the best fan experience and what do they look for today? And the fan of today is not just looking to sit back and engage with their regular broadcast and to, to follow that because it leaves gaps. It either leaves gaps in the fandom component, it leaves gaps in the way that they can engage and learn more. And so for us, we're viewing it as how can we enable these types of streams to augment the experience that we're seeing, knowing that it's going to come at a, as, as Nick put it, a cost. We're going to give up a level of kind of control over what the experience is for that fan, knowing that these augmented experiences help them do more. And that's really how we're kind of positioning all the technology around this. Can we make it so that that fan is able to get the things that help them enjoy the sport more, be it on the fandom side and connecting to the personalities and the teams, on the social side by being, again, a part of a community and people that they want to watch with, from an entertainment side and, and having a different type of entertainment experience as it comes through, uh, or from an educational front. And that's, that's the thing that we're really focusing in on is like, what are those kind of motivations? How can we, again, differentiate some of the co-streamers that participate in this and then augment that with additional technology so that there's a level of kind of consistency and a way of being able to drive a bigger narrative and a storytelling around the sport itself. Yeah, so I guess Kareem, like, you know, up here we have, you know, someone who's been here on like the two, it's pretty much all the guys organizing it, right? Someone who's been like with the team side and the organization side of it the game publisher, like the producers for the events, but you're in the meat of it as like a content creator, right? So, so when you're thinking about 
you know, either co-streaming event or covering an event from your perspective, whether it's an esports event or something like, you know, a Nintendo Direct, right? How do you sort of think about uh, your role in telling the story of an event? And um, when you're creating your content, like, what is it that you think your, fa your fans are looking for? Um, so I think my fans are just looking for interaction, like meaning. They're excited for their game coming out. They're exciting for events coming out. Um, so co-streaming for me is basically like a hype center. So when you have like the E3s or you have the gaming awards, you want to co-stream or you want to get people excited for people who don't even know about it. So I think it's very, very awesome to see how we can get more eyes and stack them on top of the events that are already, you know, occurring. Totally. Is there, is there a, do you, do you feel any pressure to sort of like put a more entertaining slant or a different slant on it from like what the, the event itself or what the, uh, um, like the, the main broadcast is doing? Uh, no, because we get to stretch the rules a little bit and have some fun on our end. So it's definitely um, nice to put my own spin on things and get the people going in a different way. Totally. Um, I guess, Parth, shifting back to you a little bit, like as someone who operated on the team side a bunch and works with some teams, like, uh, what do you think? What do you think it is the fans are looking for from the team perspective? Is it is it like close to like a regional coverage of a sports event? Is it more biased coverage? Is it um, is it more than just broadcast commentary? Is it entertainment? Like, what do you think co-streaming adds to the experience? Sure. So I remember um, when. I first joined TSM in 2015. A lot of the reasons why people tuned into TSM games was because of the personalities of the people who are not even playing the game, but as part of the leadership and part of the crew. Uh, you saw that recently when 100 Thieves joined, and, and Nadeshot was a big personality, and it's his emotion, his engagement, his belief in his team, and him being a fan of that team that really drew other fans into watching those games. And you're continuing to see that over the last two or three years with uh, Kometa, um, with K-Corp, and Ebuy's team with Koi, and recently Moist. And so I do think that from the team perspective, uh, there is a initial layer of having personalities there that draw you in because the viewer cares not only about the players there and the, the show that they're watching, but also it gives them an additional reason to care for and be a part of. Do you think, uh, I guess we talked about this a tiny bit, but a little bit of a curveball, do you feel like players should be doing more? Uh, I do think that players should and can be doing more, but they should be incentivized in order to do so. Uh, right now, a lot of the professional esports teams really prioritize performance. They have really grueling uh, training regimes where I know most League of Legends uh, players they usually get up at 10, they start, they have a team meeting or, some, uh, or workout at 11, uh, they start scrims at 12, they go from like 12 to seven or eight, they have a small break and they have to play solo again for the next three or four hours. And then they do that every day, uh, um, except for the days they're competing. And for like 10 months long, especially for the, the best pros, right? And so, unless you can carve out that time and help them see the value in building the brand and engaging with fans, um, it also has to be on the team side, so I, I think it's both. Yeah, for sure. No, sad. I think it's not just how can you leverage pro players and stars in terms of co-streaming, it's how can you insert them and build the personalities where fans are in general. And that can be in the venue and how you can, again, create opportunities to have meet and greets and to be able to interact. It can be in the co-stream and having, again, a different type of interaction and engagement, but it can also happen on other social platforms and digital realms where the fans naturally are, where they want to engage and they can have a, a personal connection. 
because again, a lot of the, the, the things that we're seeing from an esports side is that our sports are global. The fans aren't always going to be there. They're not always going to be able to have that up close personal relationship. There's not, again, to parts come up before, like a, a natural community necessarily right around you as you may have with a regional sports team. And so you need to ensure that you can put the professionals in places where they can have that engagement and that community can come together to start celebrating the sport. For sure. Um, you know, Nick, you've experienced producing some of these magnificent events in like esports and across the space over the years, right? But CoStream's kind of, kind of a newer thing, at least in terms of being more formalized and like uh, a part of the experience from like the game publisher perspective. How, you know, when you're designing experience now and knowing that co-streaming is a thing, how do you how do you account for the fact that like it might be portrayed in one of like dozens of ways, like not just on a main broadcast, but also through other lenses? Yeah. So I think part of it is um, there's not uh, you're not going to fix a certain level of control that you do or don't have. You're, it's, it's a curatorial process, right? So if you look at, for example, the League of Legends World Championship, where we did have co-streamers in venue uh, just last, last fall, um, for something like the opening ceremony, which is deeply scripted and it, it's, its presentation uh, is inseparable from what it is, there's very limited agency that the co-streamers have, right? They certainly have an opportunity to react and opine, but um, the, the degree to which they've got the opportunity to kind of manage what their programming is in that 14-minute segment is extraordinarily limited. That's by design. When you get into the actual heart of the competition, right, so you get into character select, they're loading into the game, that's when uh, we take a much more relaxed approach, right? And you, that's where you want the individual personalities and the expertise and... and all of the things that are the, the um, successful gestalt of being a content creator to shine, right? So at that point, the function of the production is to give shared imagery so that no matter what stream you're watching, you can still see what's happening in the sport and in the game. But we pull out other elements or bring in co-streamer specific elements and that's when and where the value of the co-streamer is, is really felt, in my opinion. So it's just riding that line all of the way through, right? And, you know, Doug talked about, like, there's a relaxation of control. That's pretty anxiety-inducing on the production side because we try and think about every single beat. Not necessarily successfully, but we try. Um, and now we have to lean into a little bit that there are, uh, in a good way, you know, four, six, 30, 100 agents of chaos. But that actually forces us to reconsider some of our own approach. And so I think ultimately it's a virtuous cycle, right? We, something that we were overly controlling about, we now have to relax and it suddenly changes our understanding of its value. And in turn, we see what the co-streamers do with it and where their fans or fans in aggregate gravitate or respond really positively and try and extract that learning as well. So ultimately, uh, quite candidly, it's the, I'm getting the benefit of kind of like a multifaceted R&D project. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think we started seeing like Valor and even like streamers are being invited on site, right, and being part of the broadcast, like, uh, you know, does that help a lot? Do you think that sort of, does that bring us closer to like the old broadcast and having guests on stage? Or do you think it, it lets us enhance like what co-streaming is when we have like influencers on site now, like both on broadcast and co-streaming in a way? Yeah, so I think what's really interesting and, and candidly cool about co-streamers on site is uh, if you are watching, um, a traditionally structured broadcast, whether it's esports or stick and ball sports. Um, it is certainly a shared social experience, even if you are at home, right? You are confident that there are plenty of other people around you know, your city, state, country, whatever, the world watching. You're also vicariously uh, sharing the 
uh, emotional arc of being on site because there are live fans there. I think when you insert co-streamers into the space, you are now merging the kind of parasocial experience of engaging with a co-streamer with the social experience of, of consuming the sport with sort of other faceless fans. And I think that really you're getting the best of both worlds in that instance. So I don't know that it's necessary every time, and I think you certainly want to be um, very intentional with sort of who does well with the energy in the room versus who does best when they can manage their own environment and energy. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think it is net beneficial, and it does change the composition of it. I also think for the fans, it's just... It's, everyone likes to see celebrities, right? Like even if you work, it, it, whether sports, entertainment, whatever, like it's still fun. And so I think the idea that um, a co-streamer that I'm a fan of, A, is maybe getting a little bit of an enhanced or VIP experience is sort of validating for my fandom of them, right? And at the same time, I can benefit as a viewer of that co-stream from the increased access, increased reach, and the, the ways in which they're bringing their own on-site experience into the co-stream so that I think it just builds on that same vicarious experience. Last year with our, our Champions event, we did a thing called our, our Golden Carpet where, as, as Nick and I pointed out, we had essentially gave VIP treatment of all these individuals coming in to stream from the actual finals venue. And what's amazing about that, again, is, is we can help elevate these pros to a new status and these co-streamers to a new status, even if they're not professional players. Um, and get them even more excited. And again, from the marketing perspective, really allow them to make these events be bigger than, than real life, to make it so that they can make them more aspirational, to make it so that fans from around the world, when we go to their location with one of our events, they're excited because they've seen what these consumers have experienced and they want to be a part of it. And it can actually start kind of bringing it back to home. But um, as Nick pointed out, like, that's not necessarily for everyone, and that's not the same thing. Again, as we start thinking about the motivations and what we're trying to give the fans, and in order to kind of like diversify those different streaming experiences, like you have people that may not want to get super into the excitement, but may care more about the education and learning and being able to go super deep into like the tactic that's happening because it influences them at home. So like if we can put those people in positions to succeed and either give them the, the live experience tools or to give them the other tools to be able to narrate themselves and create that experience. Like, that's what we from the sports side are thinking about so that we can give all those fans the right experience at home. So I guess building on that, right, there, there's so many avenues, right? Like folks are going to, to socials, they're going to co-streams, they're going to the main broadcast, they're going to like subreddits for better or worse to, to sort of get their, get their view in an event. Like, you know, from, from the publisher side or, or from the organizer side, like how are you think, how do you try to keep a pulse on that and try to optimize for, for meeting the fan where they're at and engaging them? It's a more challenging and diverse set of topics to hit every day. Um, the, the, the reality of it is, is that fans today want their fandom to live everywhere and where they are. And from the publisher side, it's our job to help them manifest that that fandom where they want to be. Is that on a Discord channel? Is that in the broadcast? Is that in person? We need to be able to make sure we can understand what those needs are and help them bring it to life. On top of that though, knowing that there is again like this diverging set of platforms in which they can engage and express their fandom, we do need to have a level of kind of consistency because it's like the rituals, the community, and the narrative that allows a fan base to really come together and that fandom to deepen. And so when we think about that, we start saying, okay, where can we have the most strong presence for these people? Is that like in the game client? And like with League of Legends, we've started to rebuild, again, a lot of our regional clients in order to have a more persistent um, 
set of uh, tools and information for to support the sport. But in other realms, like what we need to do is make sure that the right tools go out to the people that are telling the story as well, so that they can have that and share it out. So if it's working with the teams, if it's working with co-streamers, like what we're trying to do is enable them to have that level of consistency, and again, the rituals, the narrative, and the community, so that they can grow the fandom, and that we can have this thing, uh, again, expand over time. But it is an R&D experiment. Like it's a thing that's gonna kind of keep growing as we go on, and we're gonna run into new challenges every day. So Parth, I don't know if you sympathize with me here, but like, you know, this is all fine and well for, for the game, right? And for the sport and for the league and, and for fans of uh, everything at a high level or whoever's winning at the time. Like, you know, do you see, do you see the evolving esports broadcasts and co-streaming and all of these tools as uh, fan building tools for teams uh, in the scheme of it all or, or a little bit of a distraction? I think it's hard to say. I think it just depends on how this tool is used, right? Uh, because you can divert it more towards building the entire broadcast or you can kind of help it um, be more team-based. I know for me personally, uh, and even anecdotally when I've spoken to a lot of players this year, Riot did like an amazing move this year where they brought on Cutie Cinderella, who's um, a prominent streamer in this space, and she, they brought her onto the broadcast. There were after parties where players got, it, got to interact with her, and I actually saw a lot of value in teams and players interacting with her, both on broadcast and off broadcast in terms of kind of diversifying their own brands, getting to understand what the value is in that space. And so, yeah, I think if, if these tools are used for good, I do see a lot of value um, for a lot of teams too. But obviously, if they're more tailored towards uh, their own broadcast, there's like a big segregation between the values of the team and the broadcast and what they want to do, and they, they're kind of given freedom to run their own broadcast, they're obviously going to min-max for whatever is the most entertaining product for themselves. So I do think there needs to be some balance between bringing on co-streamers and working with them um, and making sure that they still respect and uphold the ideals of, uh, of a top eSport, which is they are competitors who are training and performing every day, and they need to be held to some level of uh, standard and respect. Do you think we're going to get to a point where, you know, if you want to be relevant as a team, you need someone like in that space co-streaming and speaking up for you and sort of giving your slant to the broadcast or the competition? Uh, I do think that every successful esports team right now needs to have a voice that speaks to the community. And you can see that from most of the popular esports teams today, right? Like you had, you have 100 Thieves, you have a lot of the guys in, in, in EU and NA, like all the most popular teams have a voice. It's the, it's the teams who don't have some level of like consistent person who can talk to the community, tell them about their issues, talk to and connect with the fans are the teams that are struggling to build long-term fandom. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if it comes in the shape of co-streaming or someone who's internal to the org, but absolutely there needs to be a voice that speaks to the community on behalf of the team. Yeah, for sure. I was gonna say, I think 100% agree with that. I think as we think about what we learn from traditional sports, right? You have, I grew up here in Boston as a Red Sox fan and the Red Sox narrative that gets put through TV 38 way back in the day, Ness and Today, you know, is a very different narrative than what would be seen on the Yes Network from a Yankees fan seeing that, you know, opposite story. And so you need to be able to have those different perspectives in order to, again, build things like rivalry, to build up your, your different stars, to insert personality and to develop, again, like the culture around a team. And so this is one of the, uh, I think you said like tools that's really useful to do that. Also from a sports league side though, we can use other personalities that can help 
augment again the, the upper funnel of fandom to bring into the sport because not everyone's going to necessarily want to just hop right into this or know how to. And so when you use someone that can be, again, more educational or that can be a broader entertainer and that can give uh, a different reason to engage with this, it helps get people on that journey and ideally then transfers them down into these different streamers that can help with the team fandom and really make them find a community that aligns with their values and helps them grow and be a part of it. So Kareem, no pressure, you're a streamer for CLG, right? Uh, I, I guess when you think about like co-streaming and, and, and sort of you know, what we've spoken about so far, you know, how do you think co-streaming helps you build your community and you know, what are some of the things that help your fan, uh, what are some of the things that your fans ask for to help them get more engaged and then how do you, how do you think about tying that to like, the org you're representing? I think um, co-streaming definitely provides a sense of family when it comes to running polls, because you get to find out exactly what they don't like, which isn't always a good thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, being on CLG, finding a home, and then actually turning my community into my own home, it's kind of like you know a shared like item. Like let's say like we all share like locker rooms, schools, etc. You find that passion, you find the love and you guys come together to share something that turns into something very beautiful. Like, it's so hard to explain it and to put into words like the meaning of family or like what we have at CLG. Um, I'm just happy that I get to be the voice and co-stream and show people something that they might have not seen before or like a personality or a streamer or an event that they would love to go to in the future, like multiple lands, um, et cetera, VCT, uh, LCS. But being in that space has definitely been, you know, it's been important to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've talked about this all like very philosophically and high level in business strategy, right? I guess, can you share like an experience you've had recently, just sort of co-streaming that you felt like went particularly well with, with, with your fans and, and your audience? Uh, so yeah, we did, um, I believe we co-streamed ALGS for Apex and LAN. And I got to see all my community members that were in London out in the stands, so we're just screaming at them, and they're in the chat texting us, and we're just like so happy for them. And then we're over here um, making bets on who's gonna win uh, the ALGS. So it's it's definitely an experience. Um, if you haven't gone to a land, please do. It's amazing. It'll make you love the game even more, or and the community. For sure. Um, I guess switching gears a, a bit and thinking about just like the impact of all of this, right? Like Nick, I, you know, you're, you've, you work on, I've said it already, you work on big events that have impact on a global scale, right? And it was mentioned on one of the fandom panels yesterday that, you know, a lot of fans like with, with streaming, with everything, like and, and giving global audiences, there are a lot of fans that will never step foot in an arena or probably never make it out to an event. So when you think about um, both like the design and the impact of, of the events you work on, how do you prioritize between like the fan that's there viscerally like screaming in the room versus you know someone who's half a globe away trying to consume the same event? Yeah, so um, obviously the parameters can change, right? So you can have an event that has a different identity, but the, the guiding principle has, has historically been that we optimize for broadcast, um, but that the opportunity cost that we're in essence, asking the in-person audience to pay should be invisible to them, right? So, so long as the trade-offs that we make in service of that prioritization are functionally invisible to the audience, then we're succeeding, right? So, um, 
you can script a moment in uh, the closing ceremony, right? And it's about how it's going to read on camera. And so long as there is a um, sympathetic or correlating uh, experience happening in-house, even if it's lesser, that is success for us. There is a floor and a ceiling, obviously, but it's, I think it's just built into, in particular, what esports is, right? Because uh, esports can only exist with the advent of the internet, and the internet was already an instance by which you could remotely participate in something, right? You are at home, you are playing a game with other people who are not with you. So I think to convert gaming into esports is automatically to understand that a greater percentage of your audience is not going to be with you at the time of the event. And so I think that just colors everything that, that comes after that, quite, quite frankly. So I guess in that regard, like, one would you, so would we say like the online audience pretty much always wins in that prioritization, tipping the scale? And I guess too, not to complicate it too much, but how much consideration do you give to like regional global audiences? Mm -hmm. um, so let me work backwards. Regional global audiences uh, certainly matter, but usually it is about finding the Venn diagram of all of their interests and being mindful of particular, uh, particularly strong dislikes. Um, obviously, cultural mores differ wildly all over the planet. What's great about sport, esport or otherwise, is it's, it's universal, right? We're all interested in sharing success with people. We're all interested in not losing, right? Like, so the, that arc and that journey of triumph and struggle and, and you know, loss and victory, that, that transcends cultural differences. So part of what we make sure we do is that the storytelling is rooted in the most basic sort of human emotions of that arc, right? Um, after that, part of what is super fun about working on the Riot events is they do rotate their global markets. And part of what we've found to be quite successful is uh, integrating and evoking and expressing some of the local culture inside of the show so that two things really are happening there. One is uh, that the, um, the flavor of the event is representative and evocative of where it's held, which we think is important. And the local audience tends to respond accordingly, which is part of what you want, right? You want a really enthusiastic room. The other thing is, if you are in the queue for a global event in a different part of the world, whether you know it or not, you can get excited at the notion that someday your culture will in some way be celebrated and integrated into this thing that you already love. And so even if it's not your culture that you see there, I feel people still respond really positively because they are signing up for the idea that someday they'll get to have that kind of same emotional experience. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, what was the, fir the first half of your question? Uh, does the broadcast always right. win compared to an arena? Um, yes, but if I'm doing my job successfully, they're never in such a uh, stark tension that we have to choose a winner and a loser. It's really just about looking at something with two lenses, no pun intended, right? But um, you know, the, the opening ceremony last year, we had a moment where an animated character is falling down a piece of mesh, and what we want is for the in-person audience to be able to suspend their disbelief for that 12 or 14 minutes. It shouldn't matter who is a character, who is a human performer. For the broadcast, we are looking at a very specific moment to pull the view, the broadcast viewer on an emotional arc with the story that we're capturing with the camera, but the camera is more limiting, or more, I don't know, bespoke, more specific, than if you're there in person. If you're there in person, you can see whatever you want, right, in terms of what we're, we're putting in front of you. So it's also just different, right? So long as there is m one or more things for the in-person audience to engage with in a positive manner, the broadcast is choosing one thing, and so that's part of why they're not really ever in conflict, right? I just may choose to 
build something that plays much better on broadcasts, but so long as there's two, three, four, five other fun, exciting, impressive, whatever things happening in the room, that sacrifice isn't really felt by the in-person audience. So I guess for everyone here, like we're all, we all have more or less gaming. We're coming from gaming background or esports background, right? Um, but like, I think this is pretty relevant to, to traditional sports. Like, do we, do we think like with what Nick just said, like, is that where traditional sports are going? Obviously we don't have the same like gate revenue and, and like the in-person experience isn't so core, as core, I mean, it ha it's, it's valuable from a fandom perspective, but it's not as core to our businesses as it is for traditional sports. But do we think that has the potential to be um, something traditional sports can learn from? I'll jump in. Uh I think the answer is, from the learning side is yes, right? Again, eSports, to Nick's point, being natively digital and therefore global to, to a degree makes it so that we've had to focus on that type of a, a, a fan state since the beginning. On the traditional sports side, you've been able to have regionalism and regional media rights and regional structure from a, a, a business sense. Uh, allow it to, to grow and to thrive as it has. But as we start again looking at global fan bases and what that means, it does kind of move the scale a bit. And so I think as we kind of look forward on, on the traditional support side, I think there's going to be a need to adapt a lot more of those uh, ways of approaching it, like both from how do you diversify the types of streams and the way you present content in order to better connect with different fan bases, with different, again, cultural expectations and norms, and also experience levels with the sport so that they can feel connected. And then two, how do you make it so that even if they've never been to the place, they feel as though they, they know what it is and that they can feel it. And that also that it's aspirational for them to go there, right? Because that's what makes it so that it, it feels more than just the, the sport that's happening on the stage. It, it's a thing that's like part of you, so. So I guess Parth, like, you know, with CoStreams and all these advances that we're making, like how, how do you see this sort of evolve? How do you see CoStreaming, for example, like evolving uh, from a like league and team perspective? And, and do you think like eventually we're gonna look back on CoStreaming as a positive or, or, or negative um, development in the scheme of like how we consume esports? Sure. So, again, like I said before, co-streaming is a tool and it depends on like which way it goes and how it's used, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think, honestly, the big onus ends up becoming on the publisher because unlike traditional sports, um, publishers who own the IP get to decide where people watch, what people watch, and in what form people watch, right? And so they, they do have a lot of power in terms of how to give the, in terms of how they work with co-streamers. Are they the ones who are taking the co-streamer, enabling them, bringing them onto their broadcast and seeing if they can bring their fan and like kind of cross their fans with the fans of the sport and vice versa? Or is it more of an approach where you just see a large audience from a co-streamer and you just give them the rights and let them run free? Um, I think the conversation we had before between giving control versus what you're getting out of it is a pretty important one. And honestly, as much as the teams or the fans would like to have a say in how they engage with the, with each game or each sport, uh, I do think it comes down to the responsibility of the publisher to, um, to decide in what makes the most sense for each particular sport and region and game. 
So Doug, it sounds like it's on you a bit. I guess, do you, do you see CoStreams as advancing the sport? And uh, you know, do you see co-streaming or, or other things candidly as a potential driver for revenue in the future for, for gaming esports e ecosystems? I do, and I, again, I think it comes back to two things. One is there's a range of different technologies out there that are enabling new ways of fans to be able to connect to the experience from anywhere on the globe. And from the sports side of the house, we need to be thinking of how to best use those tools, co-streaming being one of them, to best position that fan experience and then to find the right way of, again, introducing new revenue streams to the sport. Co-streaming presents one of those interesting opportunities for us as we start thinking about the types of connections that you can build and how you can build new fandom products on top of this. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going back to the traditional sports side of the house, like, there's less people that go around saying, hey, I am just a giant NFL fan. I want to buy NFL gear. They want to buy their favorite player's jersey. They want to buy the hat of their favorite team. They want to have that connection to the community and the brand that represents them. And so for us, again, being a digital native sport, if you're going to have just a single touch point and a way in, it's leaving less room for some of that development. Now, again, we need to, in ways, relax controls and to be more, um, uh, allow more like native or, or uh, spontaneity like come through as people kind of express that. And it means less control to a degree of like how it gets presented. But in doing so, like, you really create these new experiences for that film to grow and the products that come alongside it, like be it, again, directly supporting a streamer, be it, you know, integrating new forms of digital or physical merch. Like, there's a lot of different ways to do it that we can explore. So, Kareem, you talked a little bit about lands and, like, going out to ALGS. Are there, there are other things that, that are sort of, you know, in your dream scenario you'd look for from publishers or other people to enable you to try cool new stuff on stream? Uh, yeah, I would look forward to... This is a crazy one. I don't, it's, it's happened here and there, but um, I would like to see more orgs putting, you know, their own style of their team. So let's say the, their five favorite League of Legends characters get a skin for their team, like TSMs, like the 100 Ts, or like Apex on that side. Uh, we're screaming for it. We've been screaming for it for some time, so I would really like to see that um, come into fruition. I know there's a lot of work around that, but yeah. uh, it would be nice. It's easy. I'll, we just need CLG to win worlds, and we'll, we'll give you all a, a full set of skin lines. Just worlds. No big deal. Not that hard. Uh, I mean, we, we could do a whole other panel on like in-game monetization, so uh, thank, thank you, Kareem, for standing up for us, but I'm not going to touch that one. Um, but no, I mean, I think like, you know, thinking about the technology of the space and, and delving a bit on like what's coming next before we shift to some, some uh, audience questions, like, Nick, like looking back at the pandemic, right? Esports in many ways just, you know, happened to be better, I don't know if you want to call it better prepared or situated to just uh, adapt to COVID and, and all the broad, uh, you know, um, adjust broadcasts and make all the adaptations to just keep things going, right? And continue to innovate. Um, and I think it's kind of highlighted the importance of, um, you know, having adaptable technology and innovations to, to create live experiences. So I guess one, can you talk a bit to like how you adapted tech to continue our esports business like during the pandemic and and two, you know, what do you think comes next in this space? I think as far as adapting to the pandemic goes, I think it was more about um, situated rather than um, sort of natively equipped to respond to the challenges of the pandemic. I think there's a couple of, of 
I don't know, systemic or infrastructure reasons. So one, with esports being newer, I think uh, it's largely populated by people that are in earlier arcs of their career. And so what you get are people who are closer to newer workflows and newer technologies. And so that, I think, natively sets you up to change what you're doing faster, sooner, easier, quicker, just because you're not sitting on, you know, Sports broadcasting has had, what, nearly 100 years, right, of, of evolving and sharpening and refining. And there are plenty of examples of this being done at the absolute highest levels that they are purpose-built and specialized at doing this arguably perfectly is excellent when the circumstances allow. Esports is in a place where it's choosing to mirror or mimic pieces of these established workflows as it seeks to understand how to present itself. It's also worth noting that esports is routinely viewed or referred to as one homogenous thing, and there's you know, dozens of games and dozens of sports that each represent their own nuances and constraints and opportunities, and so you end up with these highly bespoke workflows that are sometimes you know, duct tape and then sometimes are very elevated, polished approaches to solving a problem. I think when the pandemic hit, it was just a matter of not being precious about what anybody, what we were doing at the time, right? And that, I think that's just built into being in esports because you can't be precious because I don't think anybody really, really feels like they've cracked the code yet. There are some certainly more successful properties and presentations. You know, Riot certainly uh, is, is, I think, at the top of that list. But um, by and large, it was just a matter of deciding that technically nothing mattered. Let's revisit what's actually important in light of all these different constraints and then piece together a solution to that. And as soon as people are not uh, emotionally attached to the way things used to be done, which is a lot easier when you're in a space that's still new, it becomes a lot easier to think about what comes next. Um, and as a segue uh, into what comes next, I think a couple of things. I think one, um, it is, I think, quite easy to fixate on or fetishize technology as, as, as the actual thing that gives you what the future is. I think, I mean, Parth has been talking about co-streaming, not in terms of it being a technology, but it's a tool, right? Technology is just another tool. It's a matter of how, when, and why it's deployed, and I think the why is really, really key. I think that uh, esports tends to feel potentially more progressive than stick and ball sports, uh, in part because it has to be because it is, it's a new and different thing, right? And so that it is typically very technology forward in its presentation is a result of, I think, having a pretty clear sense of what problems it's seeking to solve or what it thinks the opportunities are. I think that um, in the stick and ball sports space, there's uh, sometimes, I think, a race for to stay current. And I think that, uh, by and large, esports has been about what is next. And I think that's a fundamentally different lens. And so it is certainly easy, especially in you know, the sort of modern age, to use technology to chase what's next. With that in mind, I think proper advancements of how to storytell within the sport are key. Not to sort of bring it back full circle, but there's two different elements that do that, right? One is finding different ways or deeper ways to storytell not just about the, the players themselves and, and helping deepen and build the individual brands in order to unlock a more accessible version of that person for their audience, right? And whatever is you know, appropriate for the individual um, person, content creator, or, or pro, it's also a matter of what is the yellow first downline for League of Legends, for Counter-Strike, for Valorant, for, it's, for Rocket League, right? There's, there's gonna be all these different ways of actually giving greater access to what is happening inside the sport 
And I think that's where certainly my interest lies over the next couple of years. Um, and I think that people that start to understand that for their individual sports are going to see a, a pretty stark um, growth in people understanding the game and getting excited mm -hmm. about it. So like Doug, you're, you guys are tasked with like the evolution of like League of Legends as an eSport, Valorant as an eSport, how we're presenting those things. Like how do you guys think about like what technologies you're investing in or like how you're, uh, how, like you know what, what, what Nick said, what comes next and, and how you guys are innovating to, to push forward the fan experience? Yeah, just to plus one, what we said here is I think again, technology instead of tools that help us solve the problems and we're, we're focusing from the league and the support perspective on what problems can we best address and then what types of technology solutions are out there to potentially help us with those. Um, if I were to pick one technology or like one bucket of technology, I think it's gonna be really interesting for us to, to look at from a sports perspective, it's gonna be in the AI space. And uh, I think that can help us solve a number of challenges and open up some new opportunities. I mean, Parth mentioned before around the, the pro players not necessarily having that time window to be able to like dedicate themselves to building brands and to be able to do some additional storytelling. If we're able to utilize AI to make training better and faster and to make it so that team preparation can be more streamlined, well, we just opened up time now. And that's something that ideally we can use to help with some of that. On the flip side, when we start thinking about um, having consistency in the narrative and like the storytelling while having divergent like actual views into the world, like what could we do from an AI perspective to give a co-streamer broadcaster their own ways of like showcasing what's happening? Like can we make it so that as they're talking about the things we're able to jump to different views and cameras inside of the actual house or to bring other tools up that they're able to now bring into the broadcast and talk about what's happening in a new way so that their fans can feel more connected. And so I think like that's a, a really powerful space where it's gonna impact the sport in a couple different ways, both like into the broadcast and storytelling, but also behind the scenes that make it a, a, an elevated experience. Mm -hmm. I, I guess Kareem, like, you know, if, with the theme being what's next, like for you, like, you know, what's next for the stream, right? Uh, aside from us winning worlds and you peddling our skins and, and us <laughs> making a lot of money. Uh, so yeah, after we win worlds, uh, obviously we're going to Disneyland. <laughs> um, but uh, for, what's next for me is um, just really growing uh, into my brand and growing into, you know, the creator that I want to be. I want to lift up marginalized groups, make sure they matter, and um, continue to host and react and just be, um, you know, a personality in this industry people can look up to. So that means taking on any and every job I go into with a heart full of gold and good expectations. For sure. And I guess before we move on to questions, just a quick discussion point, like Parth, not to blow up the whole thing, but you know, <laughs> supposedly there's been talk of like esports winter, right? And what uh, what teams, publishers, orgs are sort of going through as esports evolves. Like, how do you think orgs, or maybe more importantly, like some of the other people you work with, like youth tournament organizers or school athletic programs, like how how do these folks all evolve over the next couple of years? Sure. Um, so first, we have to define what an esports winter is. And I think we're so, we think of esports as what happens at the highest level of competition, right? Uh, it's like the, the top, the peak of the pyramid. And currently we're going through a phase where a lot of the investors and teams that came in and spent a lot of money to build, build fans, um, they weren't able to diversify um, their revenue streams and maybe there's a scaling back of what that looks like on the team side. But if you look at the rest of the pyramid of what esports and gaming is, you have like at the bottom where you have a bunch of 
players who are playing casually. Then above that, you have the some somewhat competitive level at like the scholastic community level, and above that, you have collegiate and amateur. There are huge chunks of this ecosystem that haven't really been looked at that are slow that have been slowly growing beneath our feet while while everyone has been focused on the pro side. So I think in order for a lot of the games titles coming out, they're going to be esport titles. For them to become multi-generational, the work that's going to be going in the next 5, 10, 20 years isn't going to be about how do we make the biggest advances on the pro side. The pro side will come when the community underneath it is built out and established. And what I know is, regardless of whatever we're doing at, on the esports level, all the people on the scholastic side see the value in building out esports programs uh, and giving a place for high school players to come out and learn the skills of teamwork, communication, uh, leadership that you see from traditional sports programs, right? Colleges are seeing the value in attracting a lot of prospects and also seeing how um, their like, specialized STEM programs and bringing on those candidates have a big tie-in into people who enjoy esports and gaming. And so what I usually like to say when people ask me this question is that, sure, in the short term, you may see a dip on the professional side, but two things are true for, for just people in general. First is the world is becoming more digital, and two, humans are just competitive by nature. And if we hold those two axioms to be true, then esports at an aggregate is only going to become more prevalent over time. Um. Sorry. Okay. Um, I guess we'll, it's a good segue because uh, it, it ties right into one of our first audience questions. And we'll stay with you, Parth, because you said the magic word. You said multi-generational, right? Like, how important is the longevity and stability of a game like League of Legends to um, the build, like building of fandom for specific players or teams? And you know, I'm curious to start with you and hear what everyone else has to think as well. Yeah. I mean, for me, I I got like League was my first. PC game, competitive game love. Um, I spent hours and days and weeks and months like pouring everything I had into this game. Uh, and it had like a huge impact on my life, right? And for me, I want to be able to share this with like my significant other, my kid when I first have, when my first kid grows up, right? Like I want him to go to like high school and be able to like cheer him on in Little League. So for me and a lot of other people around the US and people I've spoken to, they really love this game, and for them, it is really important for this game to continue in any way, shape, or form because they want to share this thing that was a big part of their lives with the people around them. Any thoughts from the publisher or the event side? <laughs> to go to, again, like multi generational, um, I do think it's you need to have a, a level of consistency. Uh, the sport provides that. To, to a significant degree, right? Like you can fall in love with the sport and love it and be there. But the part that you'll also connect to more emotionally is the, the teams and the personalities at the, the moments that you most remember, right? Like, like we live to a degree through sports and, and nostalgia. You can remember back when like your favorite team scored the biggest goal or won championships. And you go back to those moments, to those personalities, to those stars and, and look to them. And so within esports, again, it's an, it's an interesting mix because you do, as, as Nick pointed out, have a number of different types of titles and levels of sport that kind of fall into this broader bucket. And to some degree, you need, again, a level of sports that are consistent, that will be there, that you can build around. But then you also need the personalities, and those personalities, as of today, span multi-sport. And so I think it's going to be important for us to look upon both of those 
axes to have a level of longevity, to have personalities and teams that can go across multiple sports, that can bring community together, that can look to new games to bring fans in and have it, like again, bolster that community. Um, while having, again, some levels of consistency in the sport front that for the multi-generational folks that want to, again, bring their kids up and, and get into the game, uh, they have that as well. For sure. Um, time for maybe one or two more. Uh, we haven't really talked about this one. It could kind of be its own panel, but thoughts about how, uh, you know, we talked about co-streaming and the impact of influencers on streams. Do, do we think, what do you guys think about the impact of regionalization on like fandom and teams? Like, does it matter that, that Overwatch assigned and Call of Duty assigned locations to some of the teams in their league? Is it, is it a tool? Is it irrelevant? Uh, I'll jump in on this one. Um, uh, I don't quite frankly think it matters because if you love your team and you love your game, they're gonna support regardless. So I don't think region, um, you know, based, what was it again? Say that one more time. Like regionalization, like. Yeah, I don't think regionalization is a super, super big issue. It's, it's not gonna stop someone from supporting their team. It's not gonna stop, um, you know, people from locking in, playing against their favorite players, obviously in, before they go to the Worlds. Um, I don't think it's quite that big of an issue on, from my standpoint. I'll say, like, I think it's a tool that can be used to help develop fandom. It, it's one of multiple tools. If we're thinking of fandom as like this community that comes together based around a set of shared values and experiences, and that you know, makes them so strong that it's part of your personal identity, right? Then like that fandom can be built around a number of different things. And and if we look outside of sports, you look to people that are fans of favorite musicians or of certain movies uh, and stories, right? Like, like the one that we've always talked about is like Harry Potter. You can go around and be like, hey, which household are you a fan of? And people connect to those because of what they see as the values associated to that. And so when we think on a, a global and, and regional scale, you can have those values come from a lot of different places. What regionalizing a team does is it allows you to one, build that team into the local culture so it's reflective of the local values and, and cultural like norms that allow it to be easier to adapt or, or to adopt as a fan. And then two, it also creates a natural community around you to reinforce like what's going on and keep you up to speed as to the narrative and, uh, and wanting to be a part of it. And so I think the, the to, to flip it around, like from an esports perspective, you don't need to be regionalized as long as you have those things that allow fandom to grow, and two, you find the right places to insert community so that people feel, feel as though they're a part of something bigger. We're just about out of time, but just really quick for a quick mic drop question. Just don't feel, you'll, don't feel like you have to give any context, just give the answer. If there's one thing each of you could change about esports or see ha have happen in esports in like the next like three to five years, like what's that one thing for each of you? You don't know me, any context. Uh, no. Just throw I, it out uh, there. If there's one thing uh, I would like to change about esports is I just want it to be bigger. I want to see it sell out MSG. I want to see it sell out, you know, big stadiums and hear the roar. All right, so bigger for Kareem. I actually want to take the opposite route. I want more opportunities for smaller groups and local communities to be able to run events and engage with the sport in their own way and feel like there's meaning and value in it. So, yeah. 
Outside of CLG winning worlds for those skins, <laughs> um, I think the thing for me is for us to continue to build really strong brands that, that those communities can attach themselves to. I think, again, focusing on fandom development across sports is the number one thing long term. Uh, Frankly, more extroverts and outsized personalities, right? Like heroes and villains, it's really hard to manufacture them. It's part of what I try and do for a living. Um, I, it, it comes from within those individual players and, and the individual content creators. And I think people just being more comfortable to um, boldly be themselves unlocks a lot of what we're talking about here. And it's certainly a lot of fun for me to try and figure out how to capture on camera. For sure. For me, selfishly, it's more progress and development in women's esports, selfishly, with all of our CLG Red Women students. But uh, we're a bit over on time. Thank you, everyone, for showing up. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the panel. Uh, thanks for coming, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for Thank having you. Thank you.